0: Uh, Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's event. What role should artificial intelligence play in government? I'm Gavin Freegard, Programme Director here at the Institute for Government, where I lead our work on data and digital government, and I'm delighted to welcome so many of you here today for this event, held in partnership with our friends at the Royal Statistical Society. Uh, I'm going to enjoy myself while I can as chair of a panel discussion because in those lists of jobs that are easily automated or swept away by AI, I think chair of panel discussions are quite near the top. Um, Some housekeeping first, Uh, today's event is on the record, we are being recorded, we're also being live streamed, so hello if you're watching us online. Uh, If you'd like to join in with some collective intelligence around artificial intelligence, we are tweeting from at IFGEvents using the hashtag IFGDigital. And for those of you in the room, you can get onto our IFG guest Wi-Fi using the details behind me. That's, um, I think, username IFG and the password visitor, all in lowercase. So what role should artificial intelligence play in government? AI seems to be everywhere around government as a topic for discussion at the moment. We've had the House of Lords Select Committee report. We've had the Science and Technology Select Committee report on algorithms and decision-making. We've had the AI sector deal, the Hall presenter review on growing the AI industry in the UK, the new Centre for Data Ethics Innovation, the Office for Artificial Intelligence, even the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act making its way through Parliament. In civil society, we've seen the Alan Turing Institute bring AI into its remit and the foundation of the Ada Lovelace Institute. And a very happy Ada Lovelace Day to you all. (coughs) Artificial intelligence conjures up images of a science fiction future, but for many, it's already an everyday fact. AI can be both the encapsulation of bleeding-edge technology, but also in its encapsulation of our assumptions and biases, all too human. AI promises revolution in so many fields including government at the same time as government still struggles with basics of data and digital infrastructure and doesn't have the best history of technology as I think we're about to hear shortly. So what role could AI play in government and what role should AI play in government? Well, bringing their very real intelligence to artificial intelligence today, we have a fantastic panel for you. I know the insights that they're going to bring will be deeper than some of those Twitter wits who responded to me by saying that any sort of intelligence in government would be a good starting point. Uh, the panel lineup does differ slightly from that that was advertised. Nicola Blackwood sends her apologies. Uh, we'll be hearing first from Professor Helen Margit's. Quite simply, one of our foremost academics when it comes to technology and society, she is the professor of society and internet at and the former director of the Oxford Internet Institute. She leads the Alan Turing Institute's public policy programme and sits on the UK Government's Digital Economy Council and the Home Office Scientific Advisory Council. Next, we'll be hearing from Harpreet Sood, who, as well as being a practicing NHS doctor, is NHS England's Associate Chief Clinical Information Officer. His current work at NHS England includes leading on the NHS Digital Academy, working on the Global Digital Exemplar Programme, and playing a leading role in the new NHS Code of Conduct on Digital Innovation. Finally, we'll hear from Hitan Shah, Executive Director of the Royal Statistical Society, which since 1834 has been one of the world's leading organisations promoting the importance of statistics and data. He's also a visiting professor at the Policy Institute at King's College London, chair of the Friends Provident Foundation, and sits on the advisory board of the Office for National Statistics Data Science Campus, and on the Big Lottery Fund's Data and Evidence Advisory Group. Shortly, I'll ask each of the panellists to give us a sort of five to eight minute introduction and then we'll have a quick discussion between the panel before throwing it out to you. Given the expertise in the audience, um, we'll move relatively quickly to Q&A and I will, in a possibly foolhardy move as chair, invite contributions as well as questions. But please do keep them short and succinct and don't make me regret it. We'll wrap up at around two o'clock, though I know Harpreet has to dash off shortly before that, but we will keep going until two. First, though, a very quick show of hands. If I were to pick on you right now and ask you to define artificial intelligence, how many of you would feel confident doing so in front of an audience? Hands up if you would. Excellent. I think I can just about count those on one hand. Um, So I'm going to ask, um, I'm going to start by asking each of our panelists just to give us a couple of sentences. How would you define artificial intelligence? Helen first.
1: So I would define artificial intelligence as using machines and large quantities of data to understand the present and predict the future. But I would distinguish there between general, generalised artificial intelligence, i.e. the capacity, uh, sort of trying to replicate the way that replicate humans basically um, in machine form and then the use of those machines and that data to carry out specific prediction tasks which I think is kind of more realistic. Excellent,
0: thank you. Heartbreak.
2: Good question, thank you. Um, So in its simplest form I've AI we define as being applied statistics and using applied statistics essentially on large complex data sets that help solve complex problems. If the problem is simple, AI probably wouldn't have as much impact than it was complex and ensuring that we have you know, structured data sets that these techniques can be used on in order to drive insights is
3: how I would define artificial intelligence. Thank you. And Heetan? AI is magic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with all of its connotations, right? I mean, that much of it is snake oil. Uh, much of it... I mean, if we'd held this event and said, what is the role of statistics in government, none of you would have come. But by magic, calling it what's the role of AI has made you know, 160 people register for this event. Uh, AI is a kind of hype term to reclassify lots of stuff that has been going on anyway. There's very little... Uh, AI uh, uh, in the sort of sense of machine learning actually going on in policy right now Uh, but there are some interesting questions about what what it does mean if and when we really turn on the tap for that stuff.
0: Excellent, thank you so without further ado what role should AI play in government? I'll hand over to Helen first.
1: Great thank you, Uh, well first of all I want to start with a, a, a note of hope and why we should all regard this full room as a note of hope I've been looking at the relationship between government and technology for a very long time. I wrote my PhD about that. And in those days, in the 1990s, that was a really sad and lonely thing to do. Nobody wanted to talk to me. And um, the Royal Statistical Society wouldn't have had an event about technology and government. And the Institute for Government wouldn't have had an event about technology. And if they had, none of you would have come, as Heaton has pointed out. So, we, we We are at a rather, in in that sense, a rather, rather hopeful moment because you have all come, you are all interested in it. And the kind of 50 years or so that computer systems and information systems have been in government, I mean computers first entered government in the UK in the 1960s or even earlier, has been a rather sorry history of kind of Uh, gradually assuming more and more importance. There isn't a single organisation in government that isn't dependent on a huge range of computer systems for their operation, for um, any sort of policy innovation. Policy innovation is increasingly um, dependent on technological um, innovation. If you think of the kind of Great policy hopes that have floundered on the inability to build um, a, a computer system. I don't know, a bum of care nearly ended it when the, uh, the first platform to deliver it crashed. Universal Credit. Um, Already um, uh, three systems in and functioning now, but after many hundreds of of millions, a frictionless border that's going to facilitate Brexit relies on some um, innovative um, new system that has never been tested. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really important, the relationship between government and technology. Um, and I don't think there has been that recognition um, until uh, uh, quite recently, really. And I think AI, the kind of fashion of AI, if you like, has kind of, or the magic of AI, has kind of crystallised that relationship a bit in people's minds. Um, so uh, that, that, that's good. Um, But it doesn't mean that the kind of challenges of the past have completely disappeared. I mean, I think we have always had a tendency um, in government or policy-making communities to regard technology as a sort of neutral tool um, that can be controlled. We must master the internet, as GCHQ um, once put it. Um, There's tended to be a great deal of fatalism caused by... um, caused by, uh, you know, the many problems there have been with government technology, and then also a kind of consistent um, accompanying theme of futurology. There have been lots of kind of bold promises about what technology will do for government, Um, the intelligent state, the smart state, or even doing away with the state altogether. And as somebody put it in an event we we had that was held here yesterday, you know, um, there's been a tendency for futurology to overwhelm reality. So you've got those three kind of attitudes to technology and government, and I do think that makes it a challenge for what we're going to do now. Anyway, enough of the past. I mean, so my feeling from looking at this area for for 20 years is that we really must try and sort of change that for this <laughs> latest generation of technologies. That's why at the Alan Turing Institute, um, I have led on setting up a programme to see what data science can do for policymaking. In general, policymaking has not been based on large quantities of real-time transactional data, and now it could be. Um, what are the new possibilities for service design, for resource allocation, for new kind of models of government delivery. What are the possibilities here from new sources of data? And then how do we get an ethical framework for all of that? Um, how, do we, um, how do we understand the New moral dilemmas, which I do believe are, are new, I mean lots of things are old, but I think we do have some new moral dilemmas um, arising from this technology which we need to tackle so that 's what we 're going uh, doing at the Turing Institute. Um, another reason why i 'm so happy to see so many people from the public sector here. We are going around trying to talk to you, but we 'd love it if you came to talk to us um, we 're trying to work out what keeps policymakers awoke, uh, awake at night and what technology might do um, for those kind of uh, problems. Um, we, we are getting a lot of interest, and that's part of my kind of in, a note of hope at the beginning. People are really um, interested and, 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 and willing to engage. Um, and that could be on quite small things. How do you set up a data science team or... How do you you use um, data science to tackle a kind of problem like modern slavery or something like that? I noticed there was a workshop um, downstairs about that. We are starting a big project on data science and, and, and modern slavery at the Turing. So there's lots of technical questions, and there's also a great deal of ethical questions, right from how can you have an ethical framework for criminal justice to really quite small questions like, Well, not small, actually, but questions about, you know, can I share this data? Should I be sharing this data? Um, So there is a lot of interest, but of course the biggest interest is in... I call it machine learning, but actually the biggest interest is in AI because I think the idea of machine learning has a bit of a reputational problem. In the social sciences, we've always rather despised the idea that you can predict without... You need to explain... I mean, certainly in social science, you know, that's how you're trained. You know, you should you should explain, not not just predict. But there are policy situations where being able to predict a failing school or a failing hospital or a successful firm or. Um, Uh, or or a child at risk or a child that's going to drop out of school there are situations where that's a valuable task uh, so I don't think there's been some interesting work recently showing how you shouldn't knock prediction just because it's it's prediction that hasn't yet reached um, the explanatory phase machine learning also I think sounds a bit boring (laughs) artificial intelligence sounds really exciting it sounds like magic, machine learning absolutely doesn't (coughs) sound like magic but it is what AI is based on, it is the reality of AI. It is applied AI, if you like. And that's what you know will potentially be used in government. I guess it's most widely being used in the criminal justice system. In the US, it's been used for predictive policing, for <coughs> sentencing, for working out children at risk of being placed into care. It's being used by large um, for-profit education organisations to predict which students are going to drop out. And I guess the more we talk to policymakers, particularly at the local level, actually, I think here there's more, probably more AI um, being used um, in civilian government at at the local level than there is at the central level. And if you just take that example of machine learning being used to work out um, which children are at risk of being taken into care you immediately highlight lots of the sort of technical and ethical challenges that we face that result from the history of government IT. One of them is, you know, the most successful use of um, algorithms in this area has been in the US, in Pittsburgh, where they have over 20 years amassed every single data source that there Mm. is in government, every single encounter that children have had with any part of of the state or the quasi-state. And in most situations in the public sector, we're very far from having that kind of data environment. So that's a that's a clear challenge. Um, and some sort of viable models can't can't be built without incorporating, um, you know, a very very um, wide range of data sources. And then the ethical. Dilemmas involved in that kind of so these algorithms are being used by local authorities, usually from some, you know, private sector provider, um, to predict aggregate demand. How many of our children are going to be um, taken in, into care? That's a- already happening in the UK. But if you talk to the companies that are providing this kind of service, they're already coming across the problem. So they tell them what the aggregate demand is likely to be, and the next question straight away is, well, which ones? And what do they say about that? What do they say? What if the probability is 60% or 70%? Um, Should you even attempt that task? Should you pretend that you can't work that out? um, those are the kind of dilemmas that people are already facing and I think we're slightly ill-equipped to, to deal with them um, so those are the kind of things um, that we're, we're going to face it's, it's actually it, it's not although it's magic it's, it's actually it's not a nice to have it's a, utterly essential to have in that The kind of expertise you need to kind of manage those systems and to contract those systems um, and evaluate those systems and audit them is what you need to regulate now, Mm -hmm. because so much of economic and social life takes place on large platform um, providers. So it is uh, urgent, but just to end, I mean, there are, I think, great payoffs. There's a lot of talk, and I'm sure lots of you will have heard it. Even the people who said they couldn't define machine learning will have heard about bias in machine learning, racial bias, gender bias, and so on in machine learning algorithms. And there's a lot of publicity about that where they use most um, in the US. But if you think about it, they're biased because they're using training data. They have to use training data. These algorithms can't get going without any training data. And that training data is often biased. And why is it biased? Because the judicial system is somewhat biased. And we've kind of known that for years, but we've got much better ways of measuring it and making it explicit. And perhaps controlling it and tweaking it and working out how to um, uh, uh, rectify it. Actually, perhaps more hope than we have of the old system um, where some of the people kind of making the decisions in those systems um, are biased themselves, quite pro- possibly unconsciously. So there's big payoffs, but we can't kind of not do it.
0: Thank you very much, Helen.
2: No, thanks, Gavin. So <clears throat> the way I like to position this is twofold, really. One, I would like to give my prospects of what's happening uh, within the health policy system. So within the NHS, what we're doing across some of our government agencies, but also across the landscape of the NHS. And the second Perspective I like to give is my, wearing my clinical hat and saying how is this impacting my clinical care because there is a tremendous amount of insights that's being developed and we need to think about how do we marry the two. So first and foremost, I think we have to be clear, we're all clear on definitions and terminologies because you know, even just by the show of hands we had earlier today, each of us has a different meaning to what this is, and that complicates things even more, because when we're looking to make decisions, or when we want to invest in certain things, or when we want to buy in certain things, we need to be clear that this is the the right way, and this is actually using that certain technology. Recently, uh, across the NHS, we, um, as a baseline, did a state of nation type uh, report, so it was done by our uh, academic health science networks, and it was AI. It was called the AI State of the Nation Report, and I encourage many of you to look at that. And we had 150 uh, organisations come back to us and say, uh, in terms of fill this survey up. And you know, one of the questions we asked them was, how many you actually doing true AI? And out of 150, how many do you actually think we're doing true, true AI? The answer was five, right? So out of, that, out of that, five were doing true AI, so t- the techniques Helen and both Hetan mentioned, you know, where it was machine learning or NLP or, or even deep learning. The rest of them were just having a little play or a little fiddle saying this is AI. And the thing is, that becomes uh, quite serious when we're looking at it from a healthcare perspective, because a lot of them claim to be using certain tools or techniques or, you know, using it for clinical decision support systems or interpreting X, Y images or certain results. And if they're not clear, it becomes a huge challenge. So... Being clear on definition and terminology is our first call and we're putting a lot of focus on that. The second is that we think there are five key areas in the short to mid-term that we are starting to see a role of AI play across the NHS. The so first is around imaging and interpretability. So we've seen some great examples of that recently being published across mainstream media, but through our research collaboratives across the NHS, but also some of our flagship universities and the Turing Institute, we're starting to see more interesting insights being developed on that. So that's, you know, across ophthalmology, breast imaging, um, you know, and helping us interpret those images but also show the advancements in that. The second is around um, you know, providing uh, spotting the care part of it. So how do we actually ensure that these large data sets that we have across let's say Public Health England or some of the other ga- government agencies, how we're we using them in a benefit that we can spot care. So, you know, we have one of the largest databases of um, images, so uh, PACS images, so uh, X-ray and other scans across the country. And I guess uh, Helen talked about, you know, health, IT uh, IT policy in government. One (coughs) of the successes of IT policy in government from a healthcare perspective was the PACS program on the back of the uh, National Program for IT, which was a picture archiving system. So how do we ensure that all the images are being transmitted in electronic form? So we have good database there. The third is around how do we actually then use these big data sets we have and, and, and you provide insights into that. And so there is work now happening within NHS Digital, so NHS Digital is essentially seen as the IT company for the NHS and we've set up the virtual uh, data science centre there which is essentially a collaborative uh, collaboration across all healthcare agencies uh, across the UK. And being open to uh, researchers, but also industry to come in and play in a safe environment where they actually use some of these training data sets to help us answer some of the key questions that we're looking to do. The fifth, uh, fourth story is around intelligent algorithms. So, that, what do we mean by that is we, we see a key role there in clinical decision support, like I mentioned earlier, but how do we actually help with you know, medication, dosing, and helping us get to a certain point with all the different data types we have? And then the final one we, we think the short to mid term. Uh, short to medium-term impact is around uh, non-clinical, so you know administration, back office, rostering, uh, thinking about how do we actually use the techniques uh, we've talked about and helping us predict where there will be a shortfall in staff so that we can plan rather than using pencil and Excel spreadsheet that we use today in terms of doing our planning for our workforce. So we see a really great opportunity there on that front. So that's kind of my hat on, on seeing some of the role that AI can play from that kind of national policy, government perspective. Where my clinical hat, and I think this becomes slightly more interesting, is that, you know, as a clinician I I want to make, ensure that the decision being made by the clinical decision support, or the algorithm, how did it get to that decision? Because ultimately, the responsibility lies with me as a clinician for making that decision for my patient. Now, we touched upon the idea around the ethics, and we touched upon, you know, how do we regulate this. So one of the things we developed across the Department of Health was the AI code of conduct. And essentially what that is, is a first step that we have set out in saying we need an initial code of conduct to highlight um, some of the key principles we think uh, developers, researchers and industry need when they're thinking about developing new algorithms, new data-driven innovations because essentially if we want to ensure transparency, openness and limit some of that bias, we want to make sure that everyone's on the same page. So that involves things like uh, regularly performing the performance of your algorithm, being clear on your value proposition, defining the user need, because often a lot of individuals don't and a lot of developers don't, in that they go straight for a problem without actually knowing what problem they're trying to solve. And we see that very often across healthcare. And then on that basis though, uh, so that helps keep the trust between the patient and the clinician, because ultimately that's what it's about when it comes to uh, practising medicine on the front line. And we want to ensure we have the mechanisms in place when it comes to thinking about what The role of AI plays across government because even though the NHS is a service provision, a key part of it is that we have a responsibility from the centre ensuring we maintain ethics, we maintain the transparency and we maintain the openness uh, that is very much necessary in terms of understanding how patient data is being used uh, or data linked to patients in lots of other ways in terms of developing these insights. So that's some of the key things that we are doing on that front. Just going back to uh, the, the State of the Nation report then, so three things that came out of us for that in terms of seeing where the, the, the role of AI is playing across healthcare in particular was 75% of those organisations I talked about see, are, are using uh, these techniques and unlocking the value of data. So you know, really having a go at some of the data, set we have, data sets we have across the country, putting them together in terms of figuring out how do we unlock the value of that because at the moment it's still unclear <coughs> and what does it mean for your average uh, patient. 60% are, using, uh, are in the kind of condition recognition space, so thinking about how do they use uh, these techniques to recognise conditions, which I talked about. And then 50%, which is about organisation processes, so thinking about how we actually redesigning the systems, redesigning clinical pathways, helping us to put people in the right place at the right time so we help reduce that variation. So that is a brief summary on where we think um, the role of uh, AI is playing across government, uh, and hope- look forward to uh, discussing this more amongst you all today.
4: Thanks.
3: So I've got got seven points. Uh, The first is AI is magic, which is, uh, I've already said it, but let let me just say a bit more. I mean, we're we're kind of high on the hype cycle of uh, AI at the moment, and as you know, with all these hype cycles, they sort of, you know, everyone gets excited, you go to events about them, but actually nobody's really doing it in practice, Uh, and that's kind of where we're at at the moment. There's very little real AI, exactly as you said, uh, going on. So um, much of what is being packaged as AI is just statistics I mean there was this piece a couple of weeks ago in the Guardian you may have seen about local councils using algorithms to predict uh, child abuse Uh, if you sort of read the article carefully you'd find basically they were using data sets to do as you say prediction now I mean you may or may not think that's a good thing but I suppose the the questions I would ask is A would you rather they did it with data or without uh, and B would you prefer them to think about it uh, and try and plan for it or not you know This is where you try and need... I think you need to puncture the kind of notion of it being AI or algorithms and sort of ask questions. Where... What is this true AI? I think mostly it is this idea of machine learning where you're feeding extremely large amounts of data to an algorithm and it, in effect, changes the way that it works by learning through that data. Uh, And, in fact, it's very hard for you as a human to understand what it's doing. So it's not a linear model in the way that statisticians work, where statisticians really know what's going to happen within that model. But there's very, very little of that going on at the moment. It may increase over time in policy, but at the moment there's not a lot of it. So... um, but I, 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 you know, for those of you who are policymakers, I would say don't let your eyes glaze over and just think AI, therefore I don't need to think about the black box, I just need to trust the answer. Keep your critical faculties just as you would in any other situation. My second point is that, uh, so uh, you know, if I'm saying AI is kind of magic, actually the magic is in the data. So algorithms have no content. Uh, as Helen pointed out, they need data to be trained upon. Now, if you go back to the example some of you may remember a couple of years ago, uh, the Royal Free Hospital gave over uh, five years' worth of full patient records to DeepMind uh, and said, "Train your algorithm on this uh, for a very specific thing." Now, they got wrapped on the knuckles by the information Commission as they should have done for handing over their data sets. They were trying to do a good thing, so, you know, uh, and the ICO kind of no- noted that. But the point well, I mean, the thing that really strikes me is that they had no idea of the value of the data by just kind of handing it over. They thought that DeepMind had the magic. They had the magic. And so, again, those of you who are kind of public sector people who hold hold data sets, you're the ones with the magic stuff. The market of algorithm providers will come and go, but they, they need your data to train the algorithms on. Therefore, when it comes to procurement you are in a position of power. Now, I realise procurement in this country has been a long and sorry story, almost matching IT, but, you know, let's take a moment to say can you impose good governance conditions, good accountability conditions, etc., on the algorithm providers that you might bring in uh, to, to work with you. So, the second point was magic is in the data. Third point, uh, which has already been made, is that human judgment isn't always that good. So we're often comparing how will this AI or algorithm perform, and often the standard that's used is a kind of impossible one of perfection. You know, people, as you say, people are saying, "Oh, algorithms are racist, algorithms are biased, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Now, I mean that yes, but what are you comparing it to? What you should compare it to are humans, or whatever the process is before. Now, let's note humans are fallible. Uh, Nicola Blackwood, who was due to be here, who's a you know, former minister, so had kind of important levers of power in her uh, hands, uh, double-booked herself uh, for, for this date, and so wasn't able to come. Now, you know, an algorithm probably would have done a better job, right?
2: <laughs>
4: oh,
5: better, better
3: than me. <laughs> so... Uh, you know th- there is a question of what what it is you 're holding uh, the, the the algorithm in judgment against. Uh, Tom Forth, who writes a lot about innovation policy, uh, makes an argument that we don't use algorithms nearly enough because actually a lot of human decision-making is basically secret clubs of people making decisions. Often in Westminster, you're probably implicated in his view. I mean, he, his view is that you know, a lot of, lot of uh, decision-making in this country is very, very centralised and actually algorithms would be a way of decentralising some of that power. Now, I query whether, you know, whether that's necessarily the case, but the point is there is an opportunity there for us to say these are the rules we collectively want to set about how decisions are made and then there can be some transparency and regularity about that in a way that may not always be the case if those decisions are made by humans. So uh, I suppose I'm just saying human judgment isn't infallible and we shouldn't use that as a, as a kind of perfect standard. Fourth point is that policy is more difficult than selling Pop-Tarts. Um, so, you know, AI has kind of done a good job in the world of the commercial setting, uh, but uh, it, it's more complicated in, in the world of policy. So, in a commercial setting, you can make mistakes, you can screw things up, uh, and, in fact, they've got a name for it. It's called A-B testing. Uh, you know, you try this and you try that and see. Where, um, Google, Google would provide you with different shades of blue, Uh, right down to the pixel to see which one you preferred, who would click through more uh, on a particular shade of blue. Uh, And so they can test all these things because they're running millions of experiments at any given time. It's much harder in the policy setting to experiment like that and to to use things like that because you may be screwing with people's lives. So, uh, I mean, from a stats perspective, you need trustworthy analysis... Uh, And that gets tricky, uh, as you were saying earlier, when when you're thinking about algorithms that are hard to know what they're doing if it's a kind of machine learning process. Uh, One particular area is false positives. So, uh, you know, Met Police are now looking at facial recognition techniques uh, uh, and rolling those out fine, but there may well be and it seems to be high levels of false positives. So for every one person, I'm making these numbers up, but for every one person you're catching who is a baddie or the person you were looking for, you might scoop up ten that you didn't want, who who are absolutely innocent. Uh, I mean, the same has always been the case in, you know, screening programs for health, etc., etc., but these these technologies, you've got to, if you pick up one end of the stick, you've got to pick up the other end as well uh, and be aware of the uh, the, the possible uh, false positives that may come with it. So I think that, you know, uh, we've talked a bit about ethics, but ethics has, has got to play a really central role uh, in, in this area. Fifth uh, point I'd make is that government needs to improve its data infrastructure. So... We need better quality data across the piece. Uh, We need more ability to share data within bits of government because, you you know, uh, what you were saying, the Pittsburgh uh, example that you gave earlier. So electronic health records is an area where the states is well ahead of where we are. If we had those, uh, we'd be in a much better position to actually make some of this work. At the same time as getting the infrastructure right, we as a society need to decide what we're happy with and what we're not happy with. And I think that's where we haven't quite got to grips with things yet. So... um There are some people who are very gung-ho about, you know, let's let government share everything, uh, it will transform, etc., etc. There are other people who are saying privacy is the kind of key concern, we want to be able to opt our data out, etc., etc. Now, that's a societal-level debate, and we kind of need to decide, because if you pick one thing, you're closing off the door on another thing. And in a way, uh, you know, there's no right answer, but we do need to decide. The census is a good example, right? At the moment, you can't opt out of the census. Uh, There's no privacy kind of mechanism for that. Uh, but it's a good thing in terms of it allows the state to do some planning. Uh, now, do you want a similar model with your health records? Is the, is the idea that by virtue of being a citizen of this country and benefiting from the NHS in the same way I want to plough my data or you know, data about me ploughs back into the system and helps future generations? Or do we have a model where individuals can opt out? That's a societal level question which we need to agree upon And then we can develop governance structures which support that. But at the moment, there's a lack of clarity. Now, whether that's through uh, just uh, incompetence or, you know, too much else on the bandwidth. One particular area I'm concerned about is biometrics, uh, where the technology is moving very, very fast. uh, And uh, the Home Office recently brought out a biometric strategy which was pretty woeful and really isn't kind of taking these issues seriously. We should look to what Scotland has done where it's consulting on a really serious biometric strategy which is not just taking into account things like facial recognition but looking ahead and looking at voice recognition, iris recognition, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So there are examples we can build upon uh, if, we, if we look out there. Sixth point is that government currently lacks the knowledge and the skills in this area. Uh, now, skills is always one to roll out, so I won't say much on that. But knowledge, uh, this, I spoke to senior civil servants a few weeks ago uh, doing a presentation on this stuff, and uh, it just became clear to me they have not got the faintest idea about any of this stuff. Uh, now, on the one hand, you need to kind of educate yourselves, I think. Uh, coming to things like this, hopefully, is, is of some help. On the other hand, you don't need to kind of lose your brain and say this is the next thing to latch onto. It's always about bringing your policy knowledge to the table and saying, these are the questions we're trying to answer. These are the issues. How will this technology help me? Uh, and I think it's that space that and we're going to see the cycle of, first of all, policymakers aren't going to understand it at all. Then they're going to switch to saying this is the answer to everything. And then, finally, we'll get to a kind of middle way. But hopefully that won't take as long as, uh, as it has done in other places. And then my final point is, do boring things. So there's a, always a kind of rush to jump to the most difficult problems, as it were. Uh, health is uh, often an area where it, things are really quite tricky. Uh, but there are much easier kind of short-term wins. So back-office stuff, there's a lot of stuff that could just be dealt with and done using technology. Uh, and then secondly, wouldn't it just be nice if we used data to inform policy? I mean, don't worry about AI, just data would be good, right? Uh, we, I mean, this week, uh, the Department for Education has been taken completely to task for the way it's been misusing statistics on an ongoing basis by the uh, UK Statistics Authority. So there is a kind of woeful use of statistics and evidence in general. And in a sense, uh, if we can't get that right, uh, I, I'm somewhat fearful about our kind of uh, moving into the terrain of AI. Thank you. Fantastic.
0: Thank you all. Um, I'm going to ask one very, very quick question before I throw it out to you. Um, All of you touched on the sort of skills question and how you equip people in central government, local government and on the front line to get to grips with how to assess sort of AI machine learning critically. Mm -hmm. So what one thing might you recommend to help admit the public sector workforce into the magic circle of AI?
1: I don't think it's going to be one thing. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, mentioned coming to events like this, but I think... I mean, I, I think the thing is, for example, we, we had a... The, these things are grown in, in the private sector in completely different settings, as, as Heaton says, and it just sort of matters more here. So I, I, I think it's going to be enormously difficult to apply... We had somebody... We had the head of machine learning for Netflix... Um, at the cheering yesterday, very interesting talk um, he talked about how they um, uh, change the, even the presentation you get of movies, so the picture you get when you decide whether to watch a movie even the picture that you get with the movie is tailored to your personal preferences or what they think your personal preferences are and uh, very sophisticated stuff and then afterwards we were talking about it we were thinking about all the things that were wrong with it as academics do Um, and then I was thinking well yes but if it goes wrong as Heaton says it really doesn't matter does it? I mean you know somebody didn't watch that movie and it's highly dubious whether it works anyway and whether they would have watched the movie anyway and they keep changing the targets which changes the way they develop the algorithms That's, that's probably not the one to go for. Do you see what I mean? I mean, it, it's, got to be, it's got to be integrated into your domain expertise, into policymaking domain expertise. It won't be possible just to buy it off the shelf. You have to understand it to, to, to use it. I think that's the key thing. So a raising of, of, of lots of the things Heaton were talking about, like, um, you know, understanding of, of statistics and numbers and data.
2: Yeah, I think from our perspective, one of the things we're encouraging is to, uh, you know, ask the right questions. I think often, um, you know, going in blindly and, and, and being presented with lots of exciting things, just going to my example, I talked about, you know, five out of 105 companies, for example, who are doing true AI. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see from the other perspective, how many of them got challenged across the, you know, the system, because I think that this poses a risk. So, um, you know, asking those right questions is, is important but it doesn't mean you become an expert in, or a deep expert in this because you know, this requires years of training but it's about making sure that the principles that have been set out and in our case the code of conduct have been met and that we're all signing up to this together and I think that's where through the motion of this work we'll all start educating one another and learning from one another on that basis
3: so I would say uh, you already have within your departments or you know, uh, wherever you're situated within government a, a really important resource, uh, which is your statisticians. Uh, and you should use them uh, before they figure out to change their
0: job title to data scientist and charge you twice the price.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> on that note, uh, let's take some questions from the audience. Just a reminder, we are on the record. Um, do tell us who you are and where you're from and I'll try to take three at a time. And it's Ada Lovelace today, so I'm definitely going to go for the lady at the front, then the lady in the second row first, and then we'll take the gentleman at the back. This is my question time audition as well, so...
6: Thank you. Julia Manning from 2020 Health and also UCL Interaction Centre. Um, thank you, first of all, for your presentations. Really interesting, um, really thought-provoking. What bothers me is the fact that... And all of you touched on this, that the issues around ethics, bias, data quality... Although we didn't really talk about that. We're assuming the is good when... If you work in the NHS, you know, you do Harpreet and I did for 20 years, you know the data quality is really poor. Anyhow, um, uh, we're, we're talking about using um, this material. We're talking about these issues. Uh, and it just feels to me that we... You know we are allowing ourselves to be pulled into uh, this terrain without stopping and saying these are really important things to think about as a society before we start and actually let's think about where do we really need AI where are the unmet needs and is that something that you would agree with? Thank you. Uh, Secretary? Uh,
1: thank you very much and again thank you for the fascinating insight Carol Walker. Um, I wanted to just pick up on the point that Helen Margaret mentioned very briefly at the beginning, which is, I'm afraid, about Brexit. Um, all the solutions for the Northern Ireland border rely to a greater or lesser exet- extent on technology, artificial intelligence and so on. Uh, is it realistic that in the new future there could be systems like that that could work? I know that, for example, on the Swiss border, they do do a lot of technological uh, technology tracking of goods. A lot of our container ports use computer systems for um, container turnarounds and so on. Um, Are we really so far off it? Is there a system there that could be usable in the foreseeable future?
0: Thank you. And the gentleman right at the back.
7: Um, James Kidner from Improbable. We're a company that does large-scale simulation. Um, And I want to celebrate the fact that we're 45 minutes into this discussion and no-one has yet used the word dystopian. Um, Because... (laughs) Because the absence of a political voice on the panel sort of fails to remind us that, whatever way we may think in this room and in the sort of privileged environment of of SW1, for the public, artificial intelligence is magical and rather dangerous and dark. And and it's sort of that because it's black box technology that no one can quite understand, but which comes out with answers that you sort of have to accept because you can't gainsay them. I guess my question in all this is how can we demystify this for a public that, that needs to know this stuff? It's not just rejigging the name. It's coming up with stories that reassure people that, that we're addressing this problem, that machines are binary things. They're either on or off, they're black or white. They don't do nuance. And short of educating everyone about the bell curve, what's the easy way to get people to understand that this can be to everyone's advantage, but it may cause outliers to suffer some disadvantage?
0: Thank you. Who
3: would like to go first? I'm happy to chip it good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm so polite. Um, well, I'll quickly, um, the, the first question, I mean, there is actually quite a lot of thinking about ethics going on. Um, Gavin mentioned you, you know the various new organizations um, that, that, that there are. We need the equivalent of the Nuffield Council for bioethics and, and the kind of thinking we 've done about other sorts of technology, but there is a challenge there I mean actually I go to a lot of discussions about ethics and AI I mean I think we 're almost at the hype cycle the top of the hype cycle with ethics of AI um, without having done it and I think the problem there is you can 't do it in its abstract we were talking about this earlier you know you can 't you can come up with principles and everything but you've got it 's got to go hand in hand with the with the technology you know what was the first thing um, Alan Turing had to do when he'd broken the um, Enigma code he had to think of an ethical code for using it that would maximise saving human life while um, making sure that the Germans didn't find out the code was broken that was an ethical problem and the principal investigator if you like had to concern himself with it and it's getting the data scientists to think about the ethics and the rest of us to think about the data science is going to be a crucial Sort of part of doing that thinking, we can 't sort of okay, stop everyone we 're not doing this until we 've absolutely decided how it's going to be it's not it can't it just can 't work like that. Um, the brexit question um, no <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I mean, I could talk around some about this, but I mean. I do think one of the... Well, if my deputy director at the Turing in the public policy programme was here, she's an economist and did her PhD about digital trade, and she'd tell you that digital trade is just not frictionless. Um, But for a start, never mind the kind of physical um, border issues. I mean, yes, there's all sorts of things you can automate, but I think you always... I mean, it goes back to this question of policymaking being much more complicated than other, th- you know, like it is rocket science, if is what I mean, and it's more complicated than <laughs> rocket science as one of my political science colleagues once, w- once wrote. I mean, you think of the issue of driverless trucks, for example. Lots of people, most people agree, driverless trucks, that's good. You know, let's have driverless trucks. Um, uh, you know, because it's a dangerous human driving and they fall asleep and everything, and it's a very boring job, et etc. Et but the trouble is, um, there aren't as many driverless trucks Coming down the road, as, as as you would think, because the fact is that the driver of the truck does all sorts of other things at the border, which the driverless truck's just not going to be able to manage. <coughs> and someone driving, you know, uh, somebody driving their children to school is also looking after the children, you know. So they may have to be in the car anyway. Uh, you see what I mean? I mean, I do think we forget about the kind of sheer complexity of a lot of policy-making tasks. Um, and we leave out all those bits and say the system's going to do all of it um, and, and I fear it's, it's not I'm sorry I've talked too much so I'll leave you to do the last question
3: uh, I, I mean on Brexit the, the, there was a, a wag on Twitter today saying well uh, if you're worried about climate change I've got one word for you, blockchain uh, <laughs> so uh, yeah comes back to magic doesn't it and I was
1: going to uh, say it's so great we haven't mentioned that yet <laughs>
3: <laughs> um, in a way my answer to kind of both the other questions is is the same really which is that um, I think so the framing of demystification is not the right one for me, Uh, it's about how do we ensure that we have trustworthy systems which the public therefore rightly trust Uh, and I think in a way it comes back It's similar to your point of how do we design things in a way that we actually want them, and all of those require the public, and this comes back to the point I was making earlier about there are some societal level decisions we need to make about where we want to go, and if we don't make them in some kind of collective way, they will be made anyway, but perhaps in a more fragmented way, so...
2: Um. One point I just wanted to make was,
3: you know, if you look at the NHS, we've got
2: over 300 programmes at the moment across central government you know, in terms of what we're delivering from a service provision perspective. And one of the things we need to think about is how do we ensure quality assurance amongst them, right? Because at the moment, we don't have a mechanism to think about how we're quality assurancing algorithms or new types of ways of thinking, and that becomes a key part of how we tackle the issues of transparency and ensure ethics is brought into it from a way that's not abstract, but that's real, because it will, it will ensure that you know, certain decisions are being made with these algorithms that are continuously learning and we want to make sure that the quality assurance part of it is built into it.
0: Next set of questions. I will take the lady there, the lady in well, green there and then the gentleman in the pink tie there and then I'll come to the rest of you who put your hands up.
4: Hi, Sweeling Harris from the Legal Education Foundation. Um, the panel has touched on issues of ethics and the design of uh, AI and use of algorithms in government but Um, I'm quite interested in understanding the panel's thoughts on the application of administrative law standards to government use of AI and algorithms. So these are the standard administrative law principles that govern all government decisions when they affect people and people's lives and people's rights. And... Uh, It seems to me that just because something might manage to be automated, it doesn't mean that government is absolved from meeting the general standards that the law uh, sets for administrative decision making. So I'm keen to know um, the panel's thoughts on that generally, and and where are the institutions that are doing that thinking uh, to make sure that to the extent that government does move with the times and adopt these tools, they're not abandoning the standards that we expect in our rule of law governed society. Thank you.
8: I'm Stephanie Matheson, policy manager at Sense About Science. We're a small campaigning charity that stands up for the public interest in sound science and evidence in, in policy making and public discussion. And our interest in this is about algorithms and decision making. So the last two questions with the public and administrative law in mind, mine follows perfectly from. Um, I mean... I'd agree that algorithms themselves, not necessarily good or bad, but the risk lies in the scale at which they can be applied to the whole of society. And so how these models are devised really does need to be open to scrutiny. And in terms of demystifying for the public, or as I prefer Hitan's description, making sure that it's a trustworthy system deserving of trust, transparency about where they're used would be an excellent place to start. And Helen, you in particular mentioned about half a dozen fascinating examples of where algorithms are being used, and I'd much rather that data was used in all of them. But how do you know about those examples? How can the public find out where they're being used throughout the public sector? I'll restrict myself to rather than private. Um, And otherwise, if they don't know where, and this also applies to Parliament, how can the public and Parliament hold the government to account if they don't even know where they're being used in the first place?
0: Thank you. And the gentleman there.
5: Thank you, uh, Ben Alexander. Happily, I think this question is related to the other two, actually, which is, um, I think Heaton (coughs) described how you can have situations where you can't actually unpick what an algorithm has done um, after the event. And I think that's a relatively new situation, as you described it. Previously, things have been linear, which means you can go backwards. Um, And that raises quite interesting uh, issues around legal responsibility, which I guess is a subset of the ethical debate we're having. Um, And particularly given the seriousness of the potential applications that you've been highlighting, could you comment on on that legal issue from the point of view of making public sector policy? Uh, And also comment on... Whether establishing, well, whether enough has been done to establish, just in general, actually wider than public sector, the, the, the legal ramifications of these systems, and whether that's a key part of getting the trust of the public.
0: Thank you, Harpreet. do you want to start, I'm conscious of time. Yeah, if I could just take the last one. I mean,
2: one of the things that we, for example, for, again from a health perspective, is that you know, picking up the liability of how these algorithms are making decisions is becoming a key feature of it. So not only across. The, the, the workforce in that you know, they're using certain decision support tools now to come to certain decisions who picks up the accountability and who picks up the liability of that is a key concern because you know we know that when things are going right that's great but when things go wrong it becomes a huge uh, issue on that front and there's conversations we're having with indemnity organizations and uh, you know we hope to uh, put something out soon on that front because um that becomes a concern more and more so now with more and more of these algorithms coming upon that front so that's us uh, report back on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, if I can try and wrap those questions to, together, I think, I, I mean, th- there is a lot to be done in terms of transparency, explainability. We've got um, a, a, a project on explainability at the Turing, and we're working with the Information Commission's Office. We've got some citizens' juries coming up over the next... Um, a few months, but there will be some things, as all of you have suggested, that you sort of, you can't, you can't explain, or you can't backward engineer. And I think what we've got to move towards, we're very used to in kind of the field of public administration of thinking about sort of processes. You know, processes have to be kind of fair and just and everything, and we don't think so much about about rights, perhaps, as we should. and and you know what technology does and has done for ages um uh uh, it's not just ai as is it's kind of it's more messy you, you can't look at the process so so well it's more messy particularly something like i don't know the internet or a digital platform and certainly um with machine learning algorithms so you've got to find out ways of measuring if people have got have have got their rights or or have been treated unfairly or unjustly. It's quite interesting. So uh, a lot of these um, uh, uh, technologies as used in in the U.S., the the, the kind of organisation that did most to kind of expose bias in machine learning algorithms in the U.S. was ProPublica and particularly the journalist Julia Angwin, who has now set up um, an organisation for increasing technological expertise of, of journalists. But, I mean, if you talk to her about that, what she will say is that none of these s- systems which were already being used had ever been audited in any sense. They'd made n- No attempt had been made to measure whether they were biased or not, and that's what she tried to do, and there's a lot more work in that area now. And that's <coughs> what we've got to get better at doing. You know, sometimes there'll be situations where you just can't kind of explain, but you can measure whether it's biased, whether it's operating in a biased way. So we've got... I think we've got to start thinking more in that output rather than process driven sort of way and thinking about rights um, rather than kind of how, pe- how the system kind of treats people.
2: If, if I may just come on to that, so I, I did mention the code of conduct, so for example, one of the principles in that is putting the onus onto the developer and saying how are they monitoring the performance of their algorithms. Right? because we don't have a mechanism in, in the moment in, in across the health system where we can do this, but does the onus lie with a developer? Whoever developed this algorithm that demonstrates to us they're regularly monitoring that performance, they're looking at the outputs of that, so that if we were to audit this, we have a clear audit trail. And I think that's a key part, is that how do we enforce that from the onset so that people put this mechanism in place when they're developing it, rather than come and revisit this later, because often it becomes harder to do, but we want to ensure that these principles set up up front so that uh, people are aware of what we expect in order to make sure that it, it meets the expectations of the public but also the workforce in the health sector.
3: So um, I mean on this question of where the liability lies, a really interesting and tricky one. Uh, algorithms are often generic, so they were developed for one thing and then somebody patches it into a different system, as it were. Is the developer liable? Well often not. I think that corporate responsibility will remain with the organisation that is using it and it's their job to kind of, you know, uh, make sure that they're kind of using it correctly as it were. Ultimately there has to be a body that takes responsibility. Um, the, this question of the black box, I think you're, Helen is absolutely right. There are moves towards <coughs> making improving explainability of algorithms but actually it could be a bit of a blind alley. The key is accountability mm. uh, and you know We can measure outcomes, we can actually look at you know who who did well and didn 't do well out of the, the way that this algorithm worked as it were so I think that 's the way regulators should be thinking about on this point about law i think it 's a really important and kind of fundamental one. Um, the question is how far do our current sets of laws and regulations uh, in a sense, just work and sort of map across to new forms of technology. Uh, So uh, a couple of weeks ago, this has not really been noticed, but DWP, in a written answer in the House of Lords, has said that health and safety law in the workplace does apply to algorithms and, and AI. So, uh, wow, that's, you know, that's really interesting that that's very kind of clear. Now, there are all sorts of... We have anti-discrimination law already, right? We've got all sorts of laws. So, actually, in some ways, one of the strengths of our system is that the courts will kind of continue to interpret the law in a kind of broad sense uh, and kind of uh, change it in, in regards to kind of new technologies. So there's a lot that can be dealt with there. I think the key point is that you need to look at this on a sector-by-sector sector basis. So the challenges of, say, driverless cars will be quite different to uh, a diagnostic going wrong in a clinical setting, which will be different, again, to uh, whether your rubbish uh, was collected or not because of an algorithm. You know, duh, 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 duh. So regulators need to look at their whole area of work and say what are the implications in a kind of regulatory sense (coughs) of new AI technologies. So the Competition Markets Authority really ought to be thinking quite hard because new data businesses which get network effects from owning lots of data means that the notion of a monopoly is quite different now and waiting for a new competitor body to turn up after a while is probably less likely to work. But also, breakup doesn't work because, as a consumer, you don't want lots of separate providers. You, know, you don't want your, f- your, your photos in one place and your sharing with friends in another place, as it were. So you need new models for competition policy. But you need to think about this in each sector.
0: Thanks. Now, as I said, we're going to keep going until 2, but unfortunately, Harpreet has to leave us. So please join me in uh, thanking Harpreet for- So one more round of questions. Um, the lady there, then we'll take the gentleman in the back row of the, by the door there, and then the Honourable Member for Boston and Skegness in the second row.
9: Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Nadine Smith from the Centre for Public Impact. Um, the Tallinn Digital Summit um, next week um, will gather um, politicians from around the world to dis- and want to discuss AI. Um, and I'm lucky enough to be going and uh, co-hosting a conversation with them on... AI and legitimacy, which I think is kind of what we've all been discussing today. It goes beyond ethics. And it, but, the, but I think one of the key issues is, and the questions within that is who is going to be able to build the legitimacy for AI? Because currently, governments themselves suffer from a lack of trust, and AI needs citizens and public servants to understand and trust it. But those in charge, the power that normally uh, we look to to help us understand and trust in systems and processes are themselves not very well trusted. So I would say I agree with the previous point about looking at AI sector by sector, about the points earlier today, about looking at the boring tasks, starting small. But how can we resist the temptation in government where we like to control things and we like to think that we own policies and conversations and technologies how can we get out of that mindset and push it right down to where it really all should be happening which is with citizens and with sectors and with public sectors who are really working where the user needs are i'm not sure i don't know what you think whether governments really can let go of this and give that conversation that power to those who really can help build that legitimacy that's needed thank you thank you gentlemen, uh, gentleman
0: there by the door
10: Hello, I'm, this I'm Tim Gordon from Best Practice AI just to answer a previous question we've actually mapped out at bestpractice.ai 600 use cases on how people are using AI including over 50 directly in the government sector and probably another 150 that will be applicable from across other functions in terms of particularly some of the, 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 the taking costs out, and the simplifying things that Hertan talked about it's been a very sober conversation, and it's rightly focused on a lot of quite deep worrying legal, ethical issues and so on. I guess my question is, what's the alternative side of this? Which is, if this conversation was taking place in Singapore or Beijing or, or California, it would be a far more positive conversation about what, the way AI is going to fundamentally restructure how we govern ourselves, how society works. What is the upside potential you see for us, given that most of the conversations in the room I suspect are about how this country lacks resources, we've got bad demographics, we can't spend enough money... What is the real opportunity for AI in government?
0: Thank you. And second row. Let's just will pass that
4: forward.
10: Thank you. Uh, Matt Warman, the MP for Boston to Uh we, We've been talking an awful lot about stuff that is already happening um, and a lot about frameworks and uh, trying to come up with some ethical principles. It's very clear that, in a sense, that is already too late um, because it's already happening to us Um, I I was going to ask if that's okay but it's already happening so it kind of doesn't matter Um, how do we try and get ahead of that curve or is this always going to be something where politicians are trying to play catch up more than they are in the rest of policy making
0: thank you sure
3: Um, so what's the upside Uh, AI is a kind of ubiquitous set of technologies and so will have cross-cutting impact. It's quite hard to sort of predict exactly how it will play out in every area, but um, I mean, if, you, if you accept my kind of view that uh, a lot of it is a kind of supercharging of data, evidence, statistics that was sort of already potentially positive, I mean, it, it could be massive. It just feels like there's so much wastage within the way that we do policy uh, if we can use all of this in a kind of sensible way we can get much more out of uh, you know, thinning resources, as it were. So uh, across every sector, there, there's a lot that can be done. And in some areas where, for example, with drive, driverless cars, etc., um, uh, the technology will actually just change the, the nature of society in a very positive way, if done correctly. On the other hand, uh, you know, we've talked about potential downsides. So I think that there are pathways... Uh, there are even dystopias uh, somebody wanted that word earlier um, but there are utopias as well so uh, I, th- I think there's definitely some positive stuff that can come out of this um, how do we get ahead uh, and um, you know, how do we involve the public I think are kind of the, the related questions I mean policymakers and law is always behind the curve on technology so I think we kind of have to accept that but given that I do think that there's, there's a lot of discussion in the UK on this stuff I mean, the, the House of Lords report on artificial intelligence is really one of the best select committee reports I've ever seen, actually. Uh, I really recommend it. And uh, the, the fact that there is now a government centre for data ethics, uh, I mean, my view is it would have been better to have bundled that with the information commissioner. But, you know, still we have a body being set up in this space. The independent Ada Lovelace Institute, there's a lot of kind of stuff happening. So we are, I think, further ahead than, than some other Places, But I think that Nadine's question is a really important kind of deeper, longer-term one. And uh, if you've not read it, I think Matthew Taylor's blog from about six months ago was really powerful on this. He said, uh, if you look back at the way that we uh, talked about financial markets, what we basically said was, look, uh, financial markets will make most of us better off. There will be a few people who are kind of uh, damaged in the process, but don't worry about that. Uh, there are clever people uh, in banks who are sort of looking after all of this uh, and it, it will all be fine. And then you had the financial crash and you've kind of had all sorts of things from that potentially the kind of EU referendum being connected to that, if, if that's your view, but you know, certainly uh, some massive downside and like a pushback against a sort of globalised agenda. And he said, now look at the way that people are talk- talking about technology. Well, technology is kind of making a lot of change. Uh, there, there may be some kind of breaches of privacy, etc., but don't worry, you know, for overall it will be for the good, although some of you will be kind of damaged in the process. And there's some very bright people uh, in jeans in California who are looking after all, uh, all of this, and so got nothing to worry about as it were so there is the kind of potential for the big backlash in a similar way that we've had to the kind of global financial industry if we don't play this correctly so i i mean i think your challenge is exactly the right one how do we create structures which we whereby we actually involve the public uh, or you know different parts of the public to shape this conversation and that is not an easy task uh, but it is an important one
1: yeah, so uh, the, the positive point well, I, I was trying to be positive. <laughs> um, because I was well, I was suggesting that with the fact that we're all here is positive to start with, and the reason that's positive is most of the things that any of us have been saying should happen should have happened anyway. I think, you, you know, earlier technologies and earlier statistical methods, you know, should have pushed us towards, for example, an out sort of out-based, output-based systems of administration or outcome-based systems rather than this process driven sort of bureaucratic um, model. And lots of the other things that we're thinking about, we, we should have been thinking anyway. The idea that we move towards an administration where kind of Biased decisions are kind of made explicit and starkly obvious and where we tackle the causes of them is not depending on your sort of sociological theory of elites um, is not one that we've really had before and that, that is a more exciting to me as a, as a social scientist that is a more exciting um, world um, but and this comes back to the other, other two questions, your questions about policymaking. To do that, I mean, the other thing that should always have happened is there should have been a greater engagement of policymakers with technology, um, particularly in this country, but I mean in a lot of countries, um, you, you know, rather differently perhaps in, in Singapore and even in, in the US. You know, policymakers tend to have. You know, more likely to have a scientific background, more likely to engage with technological knowledge, whereas perhaps in this country we've been particularly um, bad at that. Um, I mean, uh, Patrick Dunleavy is here, and uh, a good many years, I don't like to think about how many years ago, we wrote a, a, a report um, called, a policy report called Government on the Web, um, and we did it in 1999, 2002 and 2007 and the prevailing attitude um, I think all along the way was um, you know oh, well this is a very fast moving area, it would be It would be better if we waited until it settled down before thinking about it. And the subtext was always, maybe it will go away. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm afraid that's still there. I don't know how many times I've been on the radio saying, no, it's not a good idea to close down Facebook when there's a riot. It's not a good idea to close down WhatsApp. Um, It's not a good idea and it's not a viable idea. Um, And we do hear that from policy makers. There was a similar pronouncement from the the opposition, you know, uh, 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 at the party conference. And we can't do that. We we, we need to engage. We can't say, right, Facebook will go, it'll go, it'll die, you know. Um, We can't do that. We need to engage with it. And that will involve all levels, going back to the citizen point. It won't just, you know, it means regulation. You know GDPR did show that regulation really can happen. It means education it means educating people about all these things. Um, It means public pressure. There has been a lot of public pressure on Facebook and Facebook have changed to some extent the way um, they behave but there's much more. There's got to be pressure on them to be more transparent about what they do. I mean you know they have started but you could say it's too little too late but it's You know, it's never too late to do something.
0: Thank you, and I'm really sorry that I'm going to have to bring it to a close there, and sorry to those of you who weren't able to get your questions in. Just before we go, um, a few things uh, to sort of uh, tell you about. We've got a few other events this week that you might be interested in, especially if you've been interested in some of the issues today. Uh, Thursday morning we have the Permanent Secretary of Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, John Thompson, talking to us about operational delivery in government. I know HMRC are actually doing quite a bit with machine learning at the moment. Um, And staying on the subject of data, on Friday morning we'll be launching our Performance Tracker Report, which uses 100 data sets to look at the performance of key public services. They're both breakfast events. There will be bacon butties, so do come along. If lunch is more your thing, on Monday we'll be launching our new report on accountability with a panel including Margaret Hodge, Richard Mottram and Jonathan Slater. So please do come along to that next week. There's much more about those events, about digital government, about data, about procurement, about accountability, about all sorts of things that we've touched on today on the Institute for Government website. So all that's left for me to say is a big thank you to the Royal Statistical Society for helping us um, organise this event today. A huge thank you to you for such lively and informed questions. And finally, a big thank you to our panellists, uh, Helen and Peter.